episode 28 of the Analytics FC podcast. I'm Sam Gregory, joined as always by Tom Morville. And this week for our year-end uh, episode, we have Michael Cayley and Michael Good- Mike Goodman on the episode today. So how are you guys doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm good. This is, is Cayley. This that, is going to go that well. <laughs> yes, and this is Goodman. So Tom and I are And in we the promise same place. not to trade as we go on in the episode. <laughs> Tom and I are in the same place for the first time ever. So we decided to challenge each other, challenge ourselves today and get two guests on. <laughs> and um, I guess we should start by going into sort of how this episode came together, which was just that we thought it'd be fun to do a season end episode with the two of you, sent you a message, and then you guys had some interesting news, which I guess are you ready to share your interesting news about what you're going forward with? Sure. Uh, Kelly, do you want to do the the elevator pitch? Sure. So we are starting a new podcast. It's on the uh, Howler Radio Network. It's going to be called the Double Pivot, uh, you know, because there's two of us and that's a soccer term. Um, And we are going to start it with a – we're going to be starting it this summer, so it's going to be focused on the Copa and the Euros. But we're going to try to do is do something that's not quite – your sort of normal, here's a match, what happened in it, or here's a match coming up, I wonder what's going to happen in it. But we're going to try to sort of use the matches to abstract some sort of, you know, more, I think, interesting, hopefully, uh, more sort of analytic ideas about soccer, looking at statistical stuff, looking at tactical stuff, and sort of using the Euro and the Copa to have the kind of fun, larger conversations about soccer that I think we want to have. While at the same time, obviously, you know, sitting down and breaking down why the U.S. is terrible. So that's going to be important. Right, yeah. If you follow Kelly and me on Twitter, you're sort of, I would imagine, familiar with our attitude and sort of outlook on soccer. And that's basically what we're planning to capture in the podcast. There we go. And there's going to be a lot of dead air like that. That's, that's going to be a big... <laughs> Without a doubt. You know, all the dead air, all the time. Did you guys not think of like a, a mic related pun? I think there are. I know at least Ben Torven, he's going to be a bit disappointed that that wasn't trialed. Oh, we, we batted some about, but there are a lot of mic related puns in the media world already, is, is really what it comes down to. And surprisingly few, they're really soccer puns at the same time. Oh, dear. <clears throat> I mean, Mike, <laughs> we tentatively call this episode the Mike Check, but. That was one of the things that we talked about in the podcast name. Low-hanging fruit, I feel. Yes. Cool. Um, so I guess the first topic to discuss is probably, uh, I mean, we've got down here Euro squad chat. So I think the main topic that's been floating about this week is uh, Marcus Rashford's inclusion in the England squad. Um, so there have been a few hot takes thrown around about how, uh, you know, Rashford's obviously small sample size, overrated, quite an overrated striker. Um, it'll be interesting to see what you guys think about this. So, uh, Goodman, you first. I'm going to do last mains. It makes it a lot easier. <laughs> I, I think that makes sense. So, I think I think my main. I don't. I don't particularly have a problem with taking Rashford as a teenager as your fourth striker. Uh, I think you don't necessarily expect him to contribute a lot, and if you think he's going to be part of the setup for like you know the next decade, next 15 years then it makes sense to get him experience. I think what my point would be in general is that he he scored a lot of goals without great underlying numbers this season, which means that to my eye, he's not that great yet. Doesn't mean he won't necessarily develop into a good striker in the years to come, but right now he's riding a finishing streak. Um, And so you need to take that into account when you're 
figuring out exactly what sort of production you can count on him for right now for the Euros. And do you think there's anything to be said about the fact that his low shot numbers came under a coach who would traditionally low shot numbers, uh, well, historically low shot numbers for a Man United team? Do you think that plays into it at all? And can we expect maybe, I mean, he was averaging, I think, 1.9 shots per 90 or so. Should we expect that to be higher under Mourinho? Uh, going forward, I think that you absolutely think about that. I think that it's an open question as to whether or not he'll improve. I mean, you expect he'll improve to some degree. Um, but basically, it, it's all about setting the terms of, of the expectations and the discussions, right? So when you look at Rashford, what you're looking at is a kid who needs to do the following things. He needs to demonstrate in the next few years that he can get more shots, uh, is it maybe more likely going from Van Gaal to Mourinho? Sure. But you can't sort of ignore the fact that he still has that left to do in his development, and you're projecting the likelihood of that happening, as opposed to it having already happened. And uh, Kaylee, anything to add to that? No, it's the same. No, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah, exactly. I think that the key thing here is this is not saying, and I, I sort of stepped in it, and uh, all of Manchester United Twitter hates me um, because I said that, like, you know, hey, look, Ihe Nacho is putting up really big underlying numbers with his goals in a way that Rashford isn't. And I do think that, like, right now, I think that, it is, I, I think that Rashford is – I'm also – like, I've wa- I watched a bunch of United down the stretch um, – I was kind of interested in them, which is weird. Um, and I just, I mean, just subjectively, I thought he was fine. I, I mean, pe- people have seemed to be sort of like seeing all of these subtle things that he's doing. That, that, that I mean, every time I say something about Rashford, they're like, well, what about his amazing hold-up play? But what about his distribution from the front? And I'm like, what about his moving off the ball? And I was like, I, I don't like subjectively see that much of that, which is fine. He's an 18-year-old kid playing at the Premier League and being a cromulent player. That's very impressive. But I feel like there's been a kind of move to say that he's not merely putting up lots of goals and maybe the shots aren't there, but there's all these other things he's doing. And, you know, these are things where we really still need better stats, certainly better stats in the public domain to be able to say things about this more than I don't see that, but I don't see it. Yeah, I like you get into a really murky area when you're sort of wondering like, well, are we now seeing all of these other things because we're looking for them because he's scored goals at an unsustainable rate and now we're looking to justify their performance in other ways? Like, we don't really have a good way of, of grounding that other than, you know, Manchester United Twitter saying, look, I see all these things. And Kelly or me saying, well, I don't really see any of those things yet. So moving on from England, are there any other teams that you're particularly excited about at the Euros or that we should be looking out for, do you think? Um, you want to go first there, Kelly? Sure. I mean, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, I think everyone basically sees, well, I mean, well, I, what I'd say is I think everyone basically agrees that Germany and France are pretty well loaded, um, even with the injuries that Germany has had. Um, the team that I think that people are sleeping on a little bit is Spain. Um, I, 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 it looks, the last I checked the odds, they were significantly lower. On, uh, Spain, Spain was significantly behind the other two. And I think that that team is pretty much, I mean, the, 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 the midfielders that they brought, e- they, even with you know, making some choices I wouldn't have made, even with cutting Saul, they still have a just incredibly stocked midfield. They still have, they have, still have a good defensive line. They are still probably going to be starting one of the best um, couple of uh, 
couple couple of keepers in the world. I mean, they're they're going to be playing that sort of old time Spain version of of football that Del Bosque likes to play with the with with, with a relatively you know not the most. Uh, not the most dynamic, I guess. Well, dynamic's not the word. Not, not, not the most sort of penetrating 4-3-3. But I think the talent there matches up with absolutely anybody in the world. And I, th- I think that them getting knocked out in, in group play in the World Cup has caused people to see, see that team as less than it is. Yeah, I, talking about Spain, I also think there's this idea that they, they keep playing the same way um, because that's what Vintendo de Bosque does. And... I'm not necessarily sure that's the best way to play with their sort of upcoming crop of talent. But that doesn't mean that it isn't still a really, really good way to play with the players they have at their disposal. Like, so I I do think that they sort of get downgraded in ways that maybe they get overlooked. But I I mean, I I wouldn't put them on the same level as Germany or France, who are just so stocked. Especially France, which... Really, in the two years since the World Cup, the, the, they just have this generation of talent that kind of came out of nowhere. Um, you know, everybody knew. You know, I mean, you just look at like guys like Conte and 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 you know, just <laughs> they just sort of exploded on the scene. Um, well, me and Sam were having this debate earlier, saying how like Deschamps was so close to dropping or, or not picking Paye. Which would have been like yeah. insane, but equally, would it have really hurt the team that much, considering just the, the depth they have in that in that squad? Yeah, I, and Pai is, is a guy that that's gone like the entire like spectrum of like discovery relevance, almost missing the squad due to how stacked they are. Um, right, like he wasn't. It, it's not like he was a an impactful player for them over the course of you know the last World Cup cycle at all. Um, and then he obviously had a great year and he's obviously been an impactful player for the last year and he deserves a spot on the squad, but yeah, it's not like he's an integral player. They have three or four other parts that you might conceivably prefer to him in, in, in a given system. I guess <laughs> I'm trying to think of a good transition here um, <laughs> coming up short, <laughs> but, uh, moving on to the champions league final last week, I'm curious what your initial thoughts were, um, I seem to be on the negative side of this. I didn't think it was a great game, and then went on Twitter, and people were talking about it as this incredible final. So I'm curious what you guys thought. We'll start with Kaylee. I, I certainly had fun watching it. I was, I was with a bunch of friends on Argentinian bar nearby, and um, the bartenders were Real Madrid fans, and pretty much everyone else there was rooting for uh, El Tico Madrid because of Simeone. So that was a fun sort of uh, dynamic. But I thought the game was fun. You know, I thought I thought that you know Atletico Madrid trying to break down Real Madrid was a reason. You know, it, it, there were there were a good number of moments of excitement. Um, the problem was the sort of the negative side of it to me was that like it wasn't that interesting at the sort of next level. It was interesting because a bunch of events happened and there were exciting goals that happened at exciting times, but. Basically, what happened was that Real Madrid scored a goal, and then the little bit of contesting of midfield they were doing, they're like, oh, that's enough of that, and they sat back, and the game got played really not in midfield, but around the Real Madrid box, and occasionally on the counterattack for Real Madrid hitting Atletico. There, there, there is there wasn't sort of the number of the, the sort of number of moving dynamic interactions and interesting things happening you saw. I, I felt in Atletico's two previous uh, matches in, in in the semis and the quarters against Barcelona and Bayern. 
So it was fun, but it wasn't like the most rich football match, if that makes sense. Yeah, like it, it seemed to me like it felt like a a match where the stakes really made the entertainment value. Like you play that same match in in a I don't know a run of the mill week in La Liga. It's sort of a slightly disappointing match between the two of them, right? Right. But when it's a final and you do have like tons at stake, you know, hanging on every big moment, it sort of exaggerates a game of moments and makes those moments more entertaining, I think, to watch as a neutral. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I said on Twitter after the game that it was a it was a good final, but it wasn't really a good match, per se. I probably agree with that. Um, it was interesting to see sort of the sort of few key sort of events that happened. Say, uh, I mean, Casemiro had a pretty good game in midfield for Real. Uh, the penalty missed by Griezmann. Pepe's antics. Uh, that weird face that Mark Klettenberg made. It was all... <laughs> Like, as a collection, it was quite a nice event to close off the season. Yeah, but what's also interesting is when you run down those events, I think that it, it did sort of mask, there was a, maybe a 10-minute period where Real Madrid looked way more likely to go up 2-0 than to draw uh, at 1-1. Uh, Benzema missed a chance. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo got stoned on a very good chance. There was another chance that I think didn't quite turn into a shot. Um and so I think after the game, everybody felt, you know, because the, that was bracketed by the Griezmann penalty and then the, that he missed and then the, the game-tying goal, I think, it, I think Madrid's performance got lost a little bit in the, in the sea of, of moments. I think also there were quite a few sort of interesting tactical things that happened. Say uh, Sergio Ramos's yellow card in the, the 90th-odd minute which is probably the best tactical foul this season. Purely because it was like a three-on-one, he got a yellow. It was going to be like an insane opportunity otherwise, which was, which was pretty sick. There was an amazing still shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. There was just the, the two shot. guys on the three floor. Guys being in. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. good. And, and, and that led to uh, Klattenberg yellow-carding um, Ramos. And then I think it was, was it Gabi who was yelling at him? Yeah, and he yeah. turns yes. around in the same motion. Yeah. <laughs> Smoothly yellow cards, got it. Like he, I bet he's practiced that over and over on the training pitch. All the dance from <laughs> either or. And also, I was really impressed by Yannick uh, Ferreira Carrasco as well. I thought he was just, um, yeah. You know, if you if you're going to sort of encompass someone who's you know a, you know players change games, blah blah blah. He was just yeah an Im- impact sub. Um, of you know of all impact subs, he was pretty pretty cool to watch. I mean, he's going to be fun to watch Belgium miss use at the Euros this summer. Totally, <laughs> it would be nice to see him start. Hopefully, <laughs> I, I'm not very up on Belgium's Euro team, and I, I think that they have a lot of weird pieces that maybe don't fit together and aren't being fit well together. And I expect Carrasco to be one of those. I think, uh, Kaylee, you outlined it earlier how like they have just four midfielders, so uh, the four-two-four is going to be quite. Quite interesting. Yeah. And one of those midfielders is Marwan Fellaini, who's really a 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also think that with Belgium, we sort of, as the English language media, I guess, all, uh, overhype the fact that we know all their players and they're all playing in the Premier League. So we see them every week and I think kind of think a little bit more of them than maybe as you were talking about the Spain squad earlier, who are guys that we only probably watch in the few Liga games we watch or the Champions League games. And you don't see them on a weekly basis, whereas we all think that these... Uh, Belgian guys we see every single week playing in the Premier League are a little better than they might actually be. 
Maybe true. I also think there's a lot of leftover, like Belgium dark horse team from two years ago at the World Cup. Um, and then you look at they were okay at the World Cup, and then they haven't really developed at all since then in any particular capacity as a group. Yeah, I mean, Kevin De Bruyne's a better player than he was two years ago. Lukaku's a better player than he was two years ago. I think there's been some development there. Uh, is Eden Hazard a better player than he was two years ago? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> it's, an interesting, it's an interesting question. Um, but yeah, and they haven't solved any of the sort of uh, positional issues that they have in terms of you know not having any fullbacks for starters. Now, speaking of a team that was better than they were two years ago. <laughs> Great transition. <laughs> um, I think the big story this offseason is going to be, well, the second biggest maybe, uh, will be Leicester and how they sort of go about building the squad, building the team for the Champions League. And I'm curious what you think, A, what you think of their season in general, and B, what you think the, uh, the main thrust should be going forward for them this summer. Goodman, hit us with that. <laughs> All right, all right, I'll start. Um, I, I think that the biggest starting point of Leicester's offseason is does Conte have a buyout clause or does he not? And I think everything else stems from there. I think if you can keep the team intact, which it seems to be, it seems if you're sort of reading the, the news report tea leaves and the rumor tea leaves, it's only going to happen if Conte doesn't in fact have a buyout clause. Um, then what you're doing primarily is looking at adding very good depth um, more than adding, say, a top-line player to sit on top of it. Uh, if Conte leaves, then you have to start by, by rebuilding the midfield and then worrying about depth, and it's depth, and it's a lot bigger challenge. Kaylee? Yeah, I mean, I think that the you know, I, th- I think that one thing that people, one th- that I, I felt with Leicester is that a lot of people talk about, like, you know, you see these things like, is Leicester's counterattack like the new, n- the new secret for beating the game or something? I mean, and the, the, the problem with, with that, obviously, you know, people have counterattacked for a while, um, like last five, ten years, it's been, it's been a thing. But, um, Beyond that, what N'Golo Kante does for them is really incredible. A guy who can break up play, break up play in that elite way and carry the ball, transition from a sort of insecure, do they even have the ball, to they're breaking at speed and, he, and, 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 and he's feeding one of the runners. Um, what he can do, you know, if they don't have Kante, I think they not only need to rethink midfield, they also need to reorient their tactics a little bit because their tactics are really dependent on Kante being able to do the work of two men in midfield. I was just saying, all of this, remember, is predicated on a team that we suspect was maybe the fifth or sixth best sort of underlying numbers team in the league this year, right? So they're already sort of fighting an uphill expectations battle going into a season where they're going to be the defending champions plus have Champions League on top of that. The, the other thing I think with, with Leicester, and, uh, yeah, a- analytics podcast is doubtful about Leicester. Um, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, the, but right. the other thing with, with Leicester I think that is important to note is one thing that I think doesn't come up that much in soccer commentary because I think it, you see it somewhat, somewhat with strikers but much less with other people because there aren't the numbers for it. So when someone has a really good year and then has a poor year, people are like, oh, he wasn't actually good. Rather than if a baseball player has a really good year and then has a poor year, like, oh, he had a fluke season. 
And I, I, I think there, there's something, there's a little bit of a difference in the way the sports get talked about because of the lack of sort of good things to point to to say that. And one thing I think that happened with Leicester this year is also that a bunch of guys had, you know, their 90th, 95th percentile seasons. You know, they're going to be coming in, they're coming into another season with Wes Morgan and Robert Huth as their primary center backs. You know, those guys were really, really good that last year. Wes Morgan was amazing. But I don't know that Wes Morgan and Robert Huth are actually a great center-back pairing so much as a great center-back pairing that had a great year. And so being able – that one thing that, that Leicester are going to have to do as they look at how to, how to improve the squad and build the squad is figuring out which good performance last year they expect to be good performances next year. And I think that especially on the back line, that's a concern. Yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> I have nothing to add. I just think that that's a really good point. <laughs> okay, so no cop-out answers, no contingencies. You get one word. What uh, what place they finish in next season? Eighth. Sixth. Ooh. <laughs> Interesting. <clears throat> if someone can take a note of those and post them on Twitter, so for a year's time, we can go back to these these takes. That'd be <laughs> Seventh. Fifth. <laughs> fourth. <laughs> So moving on to Arsenal, uh, already done some business this summer. Uh, Wenger's opened his, his war chest, the, the, the much-rumoured war chest, and splashed out on Granite Xhaka, um, which is it's going to change up potentially how they play, having an actual battling uh, centre midfielder. Think, think the word a leader. leader. Yeah, yeah, sorry, a leader. <laughs> you know, Xhaka's the sort of guy who you hand your house keys to. Uh, we've all seen the, the memes. Um, Xhaka's, Xhaka's an interesting one. Um, what do you guys think of Arsenal's chances next year, and, and what do you think in terms of the Shaka move, Katie? Yeah, I mean, I, I think cer- certainly there, there's there's little question that um, you know Arsenal's season there's 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 an inflect there's a, there's a really really tight inflection pl- point in that season where Cazorla and Coquelin went down, and they and they had to start using um, they had to start using Flamini. They had to um, they had to try that Coquelin El Neni midfield, and, and they just were, they had to play Ramsey there. None none of those things worked as well. There's no question that they've been needing a very good midfielder. I I, I am not um, a, a Jaka expert. I, mean, I, I know a lot of facts about his childhood, but um, <laughs> beyond that, um, what I've seen, he looks like a a good athletic midfielder who's got a good, really who's 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 good clean on the ball, good range of passing, all the sorts of things that Arsenal need in their midfield. I think that there are, there are still I don't know that he solves everything that you that, that like you could say was wrong with Arsenal's midfield when you compare them to the very best teams, but that's a good move. Um, it seems like they're really now pushing for a striker, and I, I, I I've I've been for a while a I'm a big fan of Olivier Giroud, um, not not just physically. Um, I, th- I think that he is a really – I think he does a lot in their system that works really, really well. Um, he, the, the way, he, pa- the way he, can, he can distribute the ball at the point of attack in a crowd is extremely useful for them. I think that if they get another striker, that person will also be good, but I'm not sure that's going to be the kind of upgrade that Arsenal fans think they're getting, whereas, whereas Xhaka basically is. Yeah, I think – so when I look at Jaka, what I see is somebody who they don't have the collection of skills that, that he has all in one person. They have – so Kazorla can control the game from the midfield, but he does it primarily by moving the ball forward with his feet, by being good you know, from distance shooting. He's a very good passer, but he's not a deep-lying passer. Um, and so their deep-lying players, but primarily Coughlin, 
don't pass really particularly well. Um, so in Jockey, you get that that combination of skills in theory, a, a more deep lying midfielder who has a good range of passing and can sort of control the game. It's sort of the mix that they've missed since Arteta uh, died, you know, since, uh, but is not necessarily one that you need every game. And so it, it, it that's not bad, right? It continues sort of the, how do we mix and match the right pieces in our midfield in either or two or three to get the collection of stuff that we need. And he gives you a unique set of options that they didn't have before. Um, and I think that that conceptually is what would happen if you added a striker as well, is that you're going to get somebody who is maybe better at creating chances for himself than Giroud is. Um, people like to say Giroud is in clinical on the box. That's only kind of true. Uh, what is true is that the, the sort of the best attempts that he makes for himself, himself are very sort of specific, right? They're always, when he's scoring, they're always sort of these front post runs uh, that, you know, he gets in front of the, 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 the first defender and he's really very good in that specific zone, but he's not like a super finisher overall. So you add another striker and what you're saying is, okay, where it's a striker who is perhaps less of a good distributor like Giroud is and more adept at creating a wide variety of chances for himself. Um, I wouldn't call it a clear upgrade. I would call it, again, upgrading sort of the tactical options you have, which for Arsenal is important because they keep getting themselves in situations through not having ample cover and injury where they don't have the ability to, to adjust tactically, and they're basically just solving for who's healthy. Now, I think this is probably more a question for Kaylee, but um, towards as the season was going on, I think people's uh, opinion of Arsenal dropped a lot quicker than your model did and then expected goals models did in general, not just yours in, specific, in particular. But I'm curious if you think, was that a miss of the model or is that a miss of just something that's was that Arsenal were getting unlucky or is there something more you think you would have liked to have in there that Arsenal wasn't doing well? So, um, so as far as I can tell, um, the model mostly missed early in the season. Um, I'm just looking, at, just looking at the numbers here. You know, Arsenal, Arsenal basically hit their expected goals um, in, in, in the second half of the season, and they were way under in the first half. So it's not I – I, 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 the, the, the issue with the model is more how do you deal with the question of inflection points? Because I think it's – I think there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting and, you know, complex uh, – you know, question of exactly how close to their dominant expected goals were Arsenal in the first half of the season, to what degree in the, um, and, and, and to what degree was expected goals sort of overrating a team that was just, you know, creating chances in certain kinds of weird ways, or, 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 or maybe, 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 you know, uh, concentrating those, those chances in particular games, maybe there's some game state, maybe there's, you know, who knows what. Anyway, that, that's a complex question. Then there's, I think there's very clear, you know, the, the numbers and the sort of eye test agree that it just wasn't the same team after those injuries in midfield. And so the model doesn't really, it's not a player-specific model, and it's a little bit hard, even if you did have a player-specific model, to be able to say how what players' values are within particular systems and particular teams. So it kept, it kept... The, that those first few months of Arsenal as part of their projection, which I think is usually the right thing to do. In gen, it's hard, you know, you, you create a model that reacts too quickly to those changes, you're going to say very dumb things about teams. 
But in this case, I think the model screwed up because there was that inflection point they didn't know how to deal with, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, so I, I mean, from, from working with the expected bills, and I wrote about this a little bit about Arsenal season, right? As they were coming down the stretch, if you were to, right, projecting and expected, and, and expected goals are two sort of different things. Um, the expected goals sort of values for what our, how Arsenal was playing over the last, say, half to third of the season pretty accurately captured what, all, what Arsenal was doing on the field. Um, and so the question is really, how do you square that with the fact that early on expected goals had them doing significantly better than they were doing on the field? And how do you roll that into a prediction, which usually just sort of accounts for everything? Yeah, so moving on from Tom's favorite team to <laughs> to uh, Kaylee's favorite team, who, uh, I mean, I have to admit, I kind of stopped watching football over the past month uh, just because I had exams and stuff. So I'm assuming he finished second this year, and it's disappointing <laughs> not, to, not to take the title, but it was a good season all in all. I think that's a fair assessment. Definitely. I mean, we haven't even discussed the Premier League's decision to cancel the season after 37 games, <laughs> which, I mean, I mean, no one saw this coming. It's, it still hasn't been fully explained. But in the end, I think a 37-game season is just as valid as a 38-game season. So I, I, I'm pretty happy that things ended. <laughs> I'm more surprised that Sam actually watches football than uh, that's actually a rule. <laughs> I thought we weren't allowed. So, yeah, so is the question not... here, what happened to Spurs the last three weeks then? <laughs> Don't ask that. Don't ask that. Yeah, ask that, Kaylee. Um, I mean, I mean it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard question. And, I mean, it, it, it's a hard question to talk about. Um, no, but I, I just, the, the, the thing that, that makes it difficult is that – because obviously, you know, most of us um, – I mean those of us who watch football. So none of us watched the, the, the Newcastle Spurs game. And Spurs were terrible. Spurs were really, really bad. And it wasn't just Ryan Mason, although Ryan Mason was really, really bad. Um, but the story of them collapsing, the problem with that story is that they played a perfectly normal quality game against Southampton. They had Ryan Mason, so they were a little bit open in midfield on a couple of counterattacks. But they eas- – they, 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 I, I think that – they had a number of good chances that they that they fluffed easily could have drawn um, very easily could have put the game could have, could have gone up um, 2-0 early and you know I, I, mean, I guess at Chelsea game maybe they'd lose that but the, the, the Southampton game was a fine performance and then they choked in the last game of the season so the, the narrative doesn't quite fit because you say oh they choked after the first half in Chelsea because the you know, second half against Chelsea they, they looked like a bunch of you know angry violent children that that wasn't that wasn't the best. Um, but then they came out and had a perfectly good game against Southampton where they didn't get a result, and then they had this terrible game against Newcastle. Um, so it's hard to fit it to all the narratives people like to fit it to. I think the easiest narrative to fit it to, though, is that Spurs have spent the whole season being dependent on exactly two midfielders. One of those midfielders decided to try to remove Diego Costa's eyeball. Uh, he failed both in the removing of the eyeball and in having that not be, be noticed, leading to him not being in the game, leading to Spurs having a much, much weaker team. I mean, I think going into the offseason, it should be very, very clear. The main thing Spurs need is really another elite midfielder so that they have a group of three that they can roll out in any league or Champions League match and feel good about it. Yeah. So the thing about Southampton is they played fine, right? Not, Not great, but fine. And I think that you can sort of roll into that, the idea of even accounting for Dembele out and Mason being in, they 
still could have played more to like playing worse than that talent should could have been enough to beat Southampton but they still probably played worse than you might have expected them to um which is to say that like you can say that there is a significant letdown after the season fi- you know the championship finally slipped away after Leicester uh and account for that being a real thing but also say well just because that was a real thing didn't mean they had to you know not win against Southampton um and then yeah that sort of compounds things and for the Newcastle meltdown so we've spoken about my favorite team we've spoken about Kaylee's favorite team Sam we're going to talk about your favorite team uh Manchester United um so what do you think about the Mourinho appointment, the Zlatan rumours, and the, also the, the Monkey rumours? Although I think Monkey slash Monchi is being linked to every other team in Europe right now. So what do you think? And he's also, I think, being told that he's not going to be let out of his Sevilla contract. So it's, it's, a, it's a whole thing with him. Um, um, that's a whole different podcast. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think United are, are, are going to be better. Um, I think the sort of taking talent and grinding it into more points is what Mourinho does. Uh, I don't think that addresses some of the more systemic, longer-term big issues that United sort of have on the horizon and what they have to deal with. But, you know, I'm still a big believer that Josie Mourinho is really, really good at taking a lot of players and making them get more points than they got before. Yeah, I I mean, for me, there's sort of this tension between what the right decision was in the managerial role, and I think Van Hall's position was just untenable by the end of his reign. Just, I mean, regardless of what you think of him as a manager, just his relationship with the players was, I mean, you couldn't go forward with that. And with Mourinho, I think, as you said, he's clearly a very good manager, and it's probably a good appointment. But as someone who's hated Mourinho for the past 15 years, it's hard <laughs> to sort of come to terms with that. And I think, I think from if if I was coming from a neutral perspective, I would say, yeah, this is. As you said, I mean, he's probably not going to fix a lot of the problems that are at the club, but it's a good appointment given that he's had success over he's gone. I'm just struggling to come to terms with it as I'm going to have to get behind this guy for the next two and a half to three years. <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's like you're mourning, but no one's like, you're mourning an appointment, if that makes sense. <laughs> there are worse things in life than the football club I like, appointing someone who I've never met, but I've decided I don't like. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the thing is, once he starts needling and and and, and pissing off all the teams you also don't like, <laughs> it, 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 he he he's very good at that kind of any enemy of my enemy kind of deal. His first fight with Pat will be good. <laughs> yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how it goes. And I mean, now ever since he's been appointed, the transfer rumors have gone from their usual craziness around United to just ridiculous. I mean, we've been linked with just about everyone from Slatan to Neymar to, I don't know, <laughs> everyone else in between. I can't like worked up about this Latin rumor. I think, I think, I think I described the Ibrahimovic rumor as like the ultimate, it's somebody else's money rumor. Yeah, it's a lot of money, but it's for one year. I, I don't like what's seriously, what is the worst that can happen if you sign Zlatan Ibrahimovic for a, for a year? I would love Zlatan. I think it would be just, again, it would be so much fun, regardless of what happens in the year. I mean, it's going to be, having Zlatan on your team is going to be great. Right, and like the usual sort of like counter-argument is 
well, you could be doing other things with that money, or he's taking up a, you know, a squad spot from somebody else. But like, it's Manchester United. They, one, have all the money, and two, it, because it's rumored, at least, to only be a year, there's no sort of long-term squad-building implications. Like, I, I, you know, I, t- to me, sort of being concerned over his age and the fact that he is certainly on the, the, you know, the down, you know, past the peak of his career, they're sort of overblown worries to me. It's really just like sticker shock on somebody else's money. I think Richard Whittle's piece last Friday was uh, a quite good insight into this and, and sort of saying how, you know, there's more value in, in Man United appointing Mourinho on the marketing side, on the sort of additional revenue side than there is on the, on the footballing side. And I think that holds for the, Zl- the Zlatan move as well. I don't. I, let's see. Like, I don't know that that's true. I, maybe it's true, but I would need to like actually see numbers on you know how many people are buying a lot in Man- Manchester United jersey that wouldn't buy a Manchester United jersey otherwise. Well, like, how much more money is really being spent because Josie Mourinho is appointed versus how much more money are they going to make if they you know actually qualify for the Champions League? Didn't Sam? I think we might have spoken about this about a year ago. How? Um, Falcao's wages were covered by his shirt sales. Yeah, apparently Falcao had the, I think it was the most jersey sales, or the most or second most behind Rooney that season, and it covered the wage bill because there was no transfer fee. Right, but yeah, no, that's I, only true if all those people buying the Falcao jersey mm-hmm. wouldn't have bought a jersey anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think it might be different. In, that's I mean, and that's, again, I don't know anything about the that side of the game, but I assume it's different. There's probably, I mean, the Colombian market is bigger than the Swedish market, right? You've got more. I think that could have been a bigger factor. Sure. Than Zlatan will be, but I I, and and people people will say that that was a factor uh, in the the in in Hamas Rodriguez going to Real Madrid as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That that specific market, um, but you know, I I mean, I tend to believe, especially for big clubs, that. Continuing to win, continuing to be in the Champions League is the sort of keeping your profile that high is the most important thing overall. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, because people joke about Real Madrid and, and their their team building is haphazard, but they keep winning. They, they have they have enough talent there, obviously, that, you know, they, they've, they've now won its two Champions Leagues in three years you know, that, that, so, you know, if, if you do, so, I mean, yes, they sell jerseys. Yes, they get like somewhat prettier players than other teams do. But I don't think that, stra- I, I think that, that the sort of, the sine qua non in that strategy is also winning. Then you set, if you win, right. then you can also do all those other marketing and sales things. I just want to see a, a Zlatan Mourinho bust up and that. <laughs> would almost that that justifies the move. <laughs> yeah. So moving on to the last of our favorite teams, uh, where do you think Ajax will finish this year in the Premier League? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're good, right? I can pass now. <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, do you think the Ajax moves will... Well, you should, you should, explain what these actually are but uh, do you think that the uh, Everton is going to be sort of overhauled as Ajax this summer uh I don't know what to think um I think that if anything the last couple of years have um served maybe to disabuse Everton of the notion that they are 
uh, better, you know, that they're supposed to be anything other than one of the sort of mid-table teams. Um, my hope would be, with new ownership, that you get sort of a, a little bit of breathing room to then build for the long term to sort of hopefully institute the kind of plan that involves more than just, you know, hiring a manager and overhauling everything. Uh, but I, I, I'm firmly in the we'll need to see it to believe it portion of, of, of Everton fandom. <laughs> um, yeah. And what do you think if, you know, there's quite a big summer ahead in terms of Lukaku and John Stones' future? What do you, you probably get this question a thousand times, but, you know, what happens next season should one slash both of them guys leave? Uh, I mean, it, look, it, it depends how much you sell them for. Uh, Lukaku is the kind of talent that you have to be realistic and say, if he wants to go to one of the top clubs in the world, and one of the top clubs is actually, it's kind of impossible. But I sort of think it's imperative for Everton to set the price to reflect that, right? That it's fine. If, if you're going to pay him 200K a week and pay us 70 million to get him, we, we're, we can't, you know, Everton's not a club that can stand in the way of that financially. Uh, if people are offering 50 million and offering Lukaku like 120, 130,000 a week, I think that's a different discussion. And I think that Everton would be are sort of financially equipped enough in the new, uh, you know, in the new Premier League, you know, money world to say, no, nah, we're just going to keep them um, for a year and, and you can try again next year. Um, but that's also because I, you know, I am particularly high on Lukaku as a very young, still uh, very good uh, striker. And that, that I don't know that there's more than a, a few of them in the world that are, that are potentially on the market, and you need to maximize that. Um, Stones, I think, is is a, is a I've said loudly, frequently, a different issue, uh, if only because I I have no proof from watching lots of Everton, from looking at numbers, from talking to people, that he's actually good at defending, or that he will become good at defending. He may, um, but. You know, and it's fair to look at the Roberto Martinez effort in the last few years and say, well, they didn't really defend collectively at all, and that makes center backs look bad. And that's absolutely true. Um, but, you know, I didn't see any of the things from Stones during that time period that make you think, oh, he's a good defender trapped in a bad system, as opposed to, oh, he's a not good defender who is good with the ball at his feet, admittedly. Uh, very, maybe even very um but there's nothing there that says to me he's also a very good defender or might be a very good defender. And so when you're talking about sums like 35, 40 million, you have to be so sure that he's going to develop in article when you look at the market for defenders to say no to that, um, especially given the fact that he's already last summer refused to sign a contract extension without a 40 million dollar buyout clause, a 40 million pound buyout clause. That I, I, don't, I don't know if you get the kind of offers you did last summer, how you can turn them down again, especially with the clock ticking in three years left on his deal. Anything to add to that, Kaylee? I mean, I, I, well, I mean, just to one thing that me and Mike agree upon um, is Shocking, Lukaku right? is, Amazingly. 
I know, I know. But Rob, I, I feel like there, there's a weird amount of Lukaku skepticism out there in the world, and it's true that. And, and, and I was, I was sort of like, you know, I was, I was. I had a little bit of Lukaku skepticism after last year. He had a poor year. He had a poor year last year, but in 2014-2015, um, after 2015-2016, I think it's pretty clear. You know, there are things he is not amazing at. His first touch is not like the silkiest, most beautiful thing. But he's figured out ways to use his other skills. He's an extremely smart player, and he's modified his game in sort of some slight ways to make the most of the things he does really, really well. And now you have basically a a, a four year of sort of a four year record of excellence, a three or four year record of excellence with one blip on it, and he's twenty three, and he's still you know got room to grow. He's still got things to learn. He can still work in a in, in, in sort of a better system. I think that you know Everton certainly should try to hold on to him, but if they don't, I think he'll be a great buy for pretty much whatever elite club comes in for him. Yeah, and I think the other thing, as long as we're sort of going down the, the Lukaku rabbit hole a little bit, is because of how good he is and how young he is, he does get compared to the other sort of elite strikers around the world. And oftentimes that comparison doesn't flatter him. Um, but most of those strikers are playing on significantly better teams. And if you sort of look at Lukaku in the prism of how much of Everton's chances he's creating, I think he something like 30% of their um, expected goal total last season from his, from his shots. And that's really sort of pushing the upper limits of what a single player can do. I think only um, Odi Nagalo on, on last season at Watford was higher. And I mean, that was an extremely, you know, sort of unbalanced focus system that had two attackers, one of whose job was to feed the ball to the other one. Um, so, in the ways that the comparisons are unflattering, I think you have to at least consider the context that he's been playing for Everton and that he might have been pushing towards the upper limit of what you can do given who's playing around you. I think that's a good place to wrap up the Everton talk and uh, get to some of the listener questions we've got. So we'll do these as sort of quick hits. You can give a quick yes or no or just a quick explanation. So the first question we got is, can any of the promoted teams this season do a Leicester? No. <laughs> no? Kaylee? They're not going to. <laughs> say, say, say what you want about can and the, and, and the millions of universes out there, but they're not going to. Um, who should buy and target if Lewandowski moves? Kaylee? Oh, I, I didn't know uh, Lewandowski was moving. Um, who's on the market out there that's going to be... I mean, Ancelotti can basically take anyone and, 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 and make something good out of them. Um, the best strikers on the market are Morata and Batshuayi and Lukaku. I mean, Morata feels, feels like the kind of the guy that would fit there. I'd say that. That's not nearly as fun as Aubameyang, which, which oh, is my man. answer. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that would be so sad. Those were Dortmund fans. Okay, the next question is another. I think I know the answer to this one. <laughs> Can Pep keep his uh, his seventy three percent win rate up in the Premier League next season? Goodman. Can I refuse to answer the question on the grounds of win rate? <laughs> also, parenthetically, no. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> 
Yeah, if he does that, he is. I think he's an amazing coach. And if he does that, he, I, I'm going to be like, Pep is even better than I thought. A lot better than I thought. So, um, what were some of the most promising and fresh ideas and analytics that you saw this season that weren't your own, Michael Cady? <laughs> um, one thing I. This is something, this is something I, I'm. I'm in the process of stealing. Um, but one, th- one thing, I, I, great, great analyst steal, right? Um, but one, one thing that I saw that I thought was really fantastic was, was some of the stuff that, uh, that uh, DeepXG was doing with, with, with that, that patch score, which was finding a way, what, what, what he did was he found a way using Opta event data to come up with a map of the area on the field that a player is defensively responsible for. Um, it, it, it's, you know, all, all of these things are estimates. All of these things, certainly in the course of a game or two, you're going to have some weird estimates. But I think it's a way of starting to t- use the data to talk about defense. Because what he then started to do was say, okay, if this, this central midfielder is generally covering this area based on, b- based on the event data, then how well does he, do other teams move through that space? I think, I think that is... He, he articulated that method really, really well. Um, I'm, I'm trying to play with it. I'm trying to work with it. But I, I thought that that was a, a major step in, in sort of, at least in the public sphere, how we use the uh, Opta event data to talk about defense. Goodman? Uh, so I'll say um, some of this is Kelly's work and some of this is others, but the way we talk about uh, pace of play uh, and sort of being smarter about not only possession changing hands but how many you know what goes on between possessions changing hands and that so that you know you start to break down that two teams that you know might look similar and that they have the same amount of the ball really when you break down and profile them look incredibly different because one plays up and down frequently losing and winning the ball back while the other maintains possession for longer stretches um and so i think that like from a bigger picture what i'm talking about is the better when we've started to get better at the ways in which we we group granularity within the data so that we're sacrificing less while still being able to look at big picture stuff and i think that you know pace of play um is is an easy is sort of an easy example of that uh our next question is what do you think is going to happen with daniel Sturridge? I, I think he's going to still be very, very good when he's on the field, and I think we're going to convince ourselves he's going to be on the field a lot, and then he's going to keep getting hurt because <laughs> this is what players do. I mean, I, th- I think he's going to stay healthy forever. Uh, Liverpool fans have nothing <laughs> to worry about, and it's going to be amazing. He's, he's going he's to be 57 years old, and he's still going to be fully fit like a 25-year-old. <laughs> it's it's going to be like some sort of... Uh, you know, uh, a picture of Dorian Gray kind of situation. There's going to be a picture of him in, in, in his hallway that's got, like, cast on every, on every limb. I, I think, though, to, to, to not be funny, Liverpool have a very interesting challenge going forward uh, in terms of both how they self-assess in terms of how much of their improvement over the sort of the background of the season was due to Sturge being healthy versus due to Klopp and, and how you ensure yourself against sort of what I think we all think are inevitable storage you know injuries going forward um yankees or red sox goodman well it's it's kind of been a rough year as a yankee fan uh but you know i i have all my i i am at the point of my life where i am clinging to my childhood yankee memories much more firmly than i am clinging to the the current iteration of the team Kaylee? The, the, the Red Sox, um, 
a friend of mine uh, on, on, on Twitter or, or, or put put up that the Red Sox currently have a better uh, weighted runs created plus. All all of my ideas for how to name stats come from baseball, so I apologize. But they've got a better WRC plus than the 1927 Yankees right now. Obviously, we're all not quite that far into the season, but right now the Red Sox have like the best offense in the history of baseball. It's kind of fun. At least David Price is still garbage. Um. <laughs> oh, Price fifth is amazing, you guys. <laughs> At least that, that is some common ground for me and Sam, at least. <laughs> I like Never. There, uh, all other sports are, 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 are optional, but he's a Red Sox fan and, and a Spurs fan. Everything else, everything <laughs> else you can choose. Those are, yeah, he's, I've, I've already got him some shirts. You can always already say Tottenham Hotspur. It's pretty good. <laughs> I like this next question. Is Diego Simeone just David Moyes with sex appeal? Uh, no, he's not. Uh, I've watched. I've watched a lot of those two teams, and Atlético do. The, their defensive system is a lot more complex, and I would say somewhat better than Moises was. And Moises' defensive system was incredible, but it was, in in many ways, I, I felt like it was born out of um, necessity in terms of what players he could and could not afford. Gio uh, Simeone's is incredibly complete, uh, you know, across the board. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think that you know, there's. I, I, I will say the premise of the question. I, 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 I will, I will agree that like there, there's no question, however objectively you measure it, that, that Diego Simeone's sex appeal is is significantly higher than. <laughs> um, so, so, so there, I think, I, I, th- I think, I think we're strong. But I, I, I basically agree with Mike. <laughs> so that that's a good way to finish off the podcast. Our one last question is. What's something you two disagree about? A football-based oh. opinion you two disagree about. We, we did that today on Twitter. We disagreed a little bit about what Victor Wanyama would look like on Spurs. Yeah. And, and what was the disagreement? It was like, it was, I sort I, I of, go ahead. I, 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 I watch Wanyama and I see a guy who, um, you know, who doesn't, pass the ball or progress the ball with his feet, um, effectively enough or, uh, you know, uh, judiciously enough to be a reasonable partner for a pure shielding DM like Eric Dyer. And thus, I don't really get why, if reports are correct, Spurs are targeting him unless we have a lot of money for another midfield signing. But Mike has a completely different opinion. (laughs) Yes, my completely different opinion is that I think that Wanyama is not necessarily necessarily not close to as good as Dembele in his role but is a close enough approximation of a role that is really very difficult and unique that would he be the only midfielder you could buy he would certainly serve as an upgrade at backing up both of those two positions and it's just it's a very small family of midfielders that aren't like superstars that you can even squint and and see occupying that role. You guys are going to need to get more heated when you start the podcast. <laughs> Speaking of podcast, uh, do you guys want to give that one final plug and anything else you want to uh, give a shout out before we uh, close this off? Sure. Uh, podcast. Yeah, sure. Podcast is the double pivot. We are tentative, tentatively scheduled to launch on Friday ahead of the Cup America. 
Uh, we're on the Howler Network, and it will basically be the two of us talking in the way that you're sort of used to experiencing the two of us writing and being on Twitter. Can that be the bio? Can that be the podcast description? <laughs> we, we need to write one of those, like, soon. Yeah, that's right. I don't even remember what ours is. <laughs> don't you tell us, it's horrible. Uh, Kaylee, anything before we, uh, before we close this? Yeah, well, look, 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 for, look for our podcast. Yeah, I assume that the large majority of, our, of, of listeners to this podcast are also uh, you know, following us on Twitter and reading our stuff. But nonetheless, I am on Twitter at, at MC of A with underscores. And I am a writer at the Washington Post as well as at times at uh, ESPN and SB Nation. So you can follow me there. All right. And I am the M underscore L underscore G. And you can find my work mostly at ESPN, but possibly at some other places over this summer. Sweet. Thanks for coming on, guys. It's been uh, good fun. Yeah. All right. It was great to have. Thanks. Good times. Bye-bye.